Cancel culture is real. CrossPolitik is on the front lines of this battle with the goal of creating a Christian television network and platform where we can't be canceled and where content creators will have the freedom to glorify God. Our goal is to create a space for like-minded businesses to thrive on this platform and to reach an audience that will not only buy your products and services, but also support your business when the heat of cancel culture comes your way. We want our platform to help you create an anti-fragile business as we bring together Christians from all over the world to tune in. With millions of downloads a year, access to DirecTV, Xfinity, and social media outlets, we are excited to partner with you. So, if you own a business and believe in this vision, then you need to call me. I'm Garrison Hardy, and I am the business development rep at CrossPolitik and the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We are looking for businesses, large or small, that not only have great products and services, but also understand that the cultural battle that is impacting the business climate here and now. I have a background in marketing, and I'd love to help you advertise your business on CrossPolitik. Give me a call at 208-792-1290 or email me at garrison at fightlaughfeast.com. Some point, the Christians let me know that I was embarrassing them, and wow. you know, they were good Christians, and I, you know, I'm bad Christian, wow. uh, and that they just mm-hmm. wanted things to quietly go away. And I think about um, did an interview with uh, Fox and Friends and Judge Janine on mm-hmm. critical race theory. Well, some of my followers, at least one, said, "I'm tired of of the topic." The left doesn't get tired. You haven't won the battle, and so you can't get tired, Mm -hmm. you know, when you got a whole battle to fight, and so we give up too soon. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we've, I think we've run into um, more fights within the church than we have with our culture on our show. That's because the church has been infiltrated, Saul Alinsky style, and uh, they are pushing, you know, social justice, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The social justice is that feel good stuff. Yeah. And uh, and it was part of an agenda. And what do you mean, like Saul Alinsky style infiltration in the church? Well, people have gone into organizations, institutions like the church, with an agenda. And so it's like uh, I mm-hmm. think her name was Sarah Fluke at Georgetown that set up the organization for reproduct- reproductive rights. Mm. Um, she knew that there was a Catholic university and that they were pro-life, and so why, you know, had this high-profile battle mm-hmm. for an organization for re- reproductive rights? Well, you have an agenda, and when you think about the professional organizations, how they have reclassified, um, uh, well, different homosexual behaviors, and yep. in fact, they're moving towards. Um, mainstreaming or sanitizing pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, people yep. go into the organizations, they get key positions, they work their way to the top, and they use their power yeah. to change things. I think this might be too controversial for our show. I don't uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> we just got canceled. Thanks, Carol. <laughs> you just asked me how they do it. I know, it's I, true. My strategy is I think that uh, conservatives need to follow some of Solomonsky's tactics, mm-hmm. and like Solomonsky. Uh, the part as a good Christian that I can't endorse is deception. But he very much advocated infiltration, yep. manipulation, mm-hmm. and um, uh, a deception. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think in the Bible that there's plenty of, of examples of people using subterfuge. Yep. And mm-hmm. I tell young people that you don't have to tell everyone everything you're thinking, mm-hmm. that there's a place to be quiet. 
and uh, people like me are wired to be out there in your face. I was born transparent. I can't hide anything. When I do try to hide uh, my feelings or, or, or things, it doesn't go well for me. But for other people, I feel like in the body of Christ that people have to be strategically placed and conservatives have to be strategically placed if you feel like you got to raise your hand in class and challenge everything the professor says and out yourself, it's going to limit you. And if you're at a workplace and, you know, you don't want the DEI training or whatever's taking place, there are some people who are called to challenge it. But mm -hmm. for most people, you know, we all need our jobs. Uh, you should go. I tell people, go. Take copious notes. And, and, and keep your materials and then send them to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're my researcher. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and so the, a lot of, and that's almost like guerrilla uh, warfare, yeah, subterfuge, yeah, yeah. Yep. in a way, but we can't, uh, we are in a war. Yeah. And so we have to act like we're in a war. And when, during times of war, normal rules are relaxed. Like when David feigned uh, insanity to yeah. save his life. Yes, I mean, you have to do what you have to do. And so, <laughs> Saul Alinsky, I think that, you know, Christians should get past his dedication to Lucifer and read uh -huh. the book and see you what's know, in there that's valuable. There's, there's actually, um, our pastor, Doug Wilson, mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that name, but he uh, wrote a book called Rules for Reformers. No, I don't know. Based, based off, but he actually he, he it's self consciously based off of Saul Linsky's book, mm -hmm. and but with a twist, um, right. uh, bringing it in line with scripture. But but basically agreeing with your point that there's some actually some really uh, savvy tactics um, here that Christians yeah. need to pick up and use. I think uh, the waitress. Just peeked in. Oh, she can. Oh, she can just come, come in. in. Yeah, yeah. No, we, well, know. you can tell. You can <laughs> yeah. wave her in when she comes. Yeah, back. when she comes back in, she's, she's welcome <laughs> we, to come we, in. And we're ready for some. I'm ready for some salad. You're gonna get some salad. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna get that pecan pie. Mm. Oh, that's Is it pecan good. or pecan? It depends on how you want to say it. There's <laughs> no right or wrong answer. But how do you? Say? How do you? So my family's kind of all around. I'm Minneapolis is kind of home for me. And you? Um, Idaho is basically where I've been living most of my life. I was born and raised in Texas and now I live in Idaho. How so. do you say it? I say pecan. Pecan pie. So it's it's really well, y'all grow pecan. That's right. Pecan. That's right. I, I had a pecan tree in my neighbor's yard. Where were you born and raised? Southwest of Virginia. Okay. About 10 miles from Book D, Washington's birthplace. Oh, okay. Okay. And so you grew up? Chambersburg in the shadow of uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We were just there last yeah. year. Okay. Right. That was, uh, I was kind of telling my kids about 9 11 recently, and I've realized that that's been 20 years since 9 11. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, this week. Just this week, yeah. And I was telling them something that's happened 20 years before they even, someone got here. And my daughter's 14 now. I'm trying to let her know, like, this is what was going on in the world when you came into the world. And I realized, like, okay, I was born in 81. The civil rights movement was 20 years going on when I was born. And so I came inside the middle of this whole new. Really hey, well, then, wow. I mean, I. I was born 
1954, when that was the year of the Brown versus Board of Supervisors. Yes. 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 So my position is that I was born into a society with systemic racism, and I watched it collapse. Yeah. And what we have today is not systemic racism. We have some individual racism, but it's not systemic. Yeah. I want to, that's, what, that's why I was bringing this up, because I want to know, growing up in that era, What's the difference between what was going on then that collapsed versus what people think they're experiencing now that, you know, it's like you said. I mean, they don't want to give up. We were reaching a point where maybe the Supreme Court would abandon, would, would say we don't need affirmative action any longer because we've made such progress racially. And I think that uh, people that have a vested interest in keeping grievances open, they didn't want to give it up. And so um, the way they have redefined racism, they say it's permanent. Yeah. And even if uh, whites were to give reparations, they still wouldn't be off the hook because racism is permanent and white people have a property interest uh, in their skin color and they have to divest themselves of their whiteness. I'm not sure how they're supposed to do that. <laughs> but um, Blackface. they don't want to give it up. They don't the um they allow some people to do what, in my day, we call ethnic fraud, to pretend that you are a member Ethnic what? Fraud. Eth fraud. Ethnic, ethnic fraud. Okay. Um, when I was in college and as a professor, we knew that there were some students that claimed to be minorities to get the benefits, so it was ethnic mm -hmm. fraud. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, yeah. because we Elizabeth can self-identify <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> Rachel? Rachel, uh, yeah. Um, oh, Dollar Doll. She's an hour and a half from us. She's from Spokane, Washington. Washington. Yeah. How in the world no, but they allowed, the black community allowed, not the black community, the black elites allowed mm -hmm. that to take place. Mm -hmm. And so you can self-identify as anything. You mm -hmm. can self-identify as a white man, but then you'd get blasted. Because mm -hmm. why would you want to be a white man when there's right. so many benefits to being uh, a person of quote color, right. but you, if you're a conservative, you don't get those benefits. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. yeah, you lose but your black card. There were real grievances. He lost it moving to Idaho. There were real grievances that happened in that time in that era, especially where you were growing up at, right? Yeah, but I was not raised to uh, blame other people or look for handouts, and I believe that if I worked hard, it would make a difference, mm -hmm. and I did, and consequently. Yeah. Uh, Part, part of what a lot of people argue, though, with those grievances is that since we haven't, here's, here's an interesting, Black Wall Street, for instance. Um, you look at Black Wall Street and you see all the accumulated wealth from black right. culture at that right. time. What happened, it never got to the place where it could be replenished or rest, rest, restored in any way to the people of that generation that came after. So there's grievances there that some people are arguing that we have not been able to get to. Well, I mean, you, well, one thing, we hear the story of Black Wall Street, and the story is accurate. A bigger story is how, in less than 60 years after the end of slavery, without government assistance, That's right. that blacks created uh, a, a part of the city that became the envy you know, Super of all the neighbors. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that took place. And, Yes, why was it not rebuilt? Um, I mean, there could be a lot of factors influencing why it wasn't rebuilt in that community, but it showed uh, the potential of blacks and their successes, mm -hmm. which were taking place all across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, that is not being discussed because it doesn't fit the narrative. 
Yeah. And the fact that there are schools in New England that never discriminate against black students on the basis of race. Mm -hmm. They have alumni going back, you know, to the 1800s. Uh, and so you never hear about that. These are black people that applied to schools. They were admitted on the merits. They graduated. They're yep. part of black alumni of schools that did not discriminate on the basis of race. And then you have W.E.B. Du Bois. He went to Harvard, you know, in what, 1920s. Mm -hmm. uh, they admitted him. They didn't discriminate against him. And a lot of the discrimination that's taking place today, uh, and it seems like the government is back in the business of systemic racism in some cases, or allowing it, it's against Asians and it's against whites. Mm -hmm. It's not against blacks. How, how is it against Asians and whites? How do you see that? Well, Remember the Harvard? Are you referring to the Harvard? Uh... Well, they, it's not just Harvard. It's all the schools are doing to Asians what they used to do to Jewish students because yeah. they're high achievers. And so if they admitted people based on merit, the, the schools would be filled with Asians, then whites would be second, because Asians outperform whites, and then minorities would be at the bottom. And it wouldn't be that you would have a living white institution. Instead of the forced uh, eight to 10% black and you know maybe the 12 or 15% Hispanic, you might have four or 5% of those groups that actually meet the standards. And so you would not get uh, the large numbers that people are trying to force. And so I believe that with affirmative action, uh, when it wasn't getting the results, the schools kept lowering the standards. And so they have a lot of young people in elite institutions that can't do the work. Mm -hmm. They're frustrated. They're angry. There's nothing to do but protest because you know you're being used. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, that's Tom, good. Thomas Sowell makes a lot of this argument too, right? He's like a lot of a lot of the people that they're trying to get there um, inside of these institutions would do better at other colleges. Well, they would. And I think about you know my own career that I started at a community college, because I'd been a high school dropout. I had to prove myself there to get into the four-year school. I graduated with honors from the four-year school. That helped me get into graduate school. I went to Virginia Tech first, then mm -hmm. the University of North Carolina. And then after I'd been a professor for 10 years, I went to Yale and got a master's in law. But if I had started at a top university, I would not have been prepared for that. And my personality is such, if I was not doing well mm -hmm. academically, I would, wouldn't do it. Move I either on. have to be doing well mm -hmm. or I wouldn't do it. I would have dropped out. Mm. How do you think that, so from that era that you're coming up with the Civil Rights Movement, how, how did that era of prejudice and racism collapse? I think that the changing of people's hearts and minds. Mm. First, uh, you know, you had the Civil Rights Movement, and that was not a black civil rights movement. And if we go back to the true story of America's history, you have to go back to the fact that there were always white abolitionists. Racism. How ended. How, yeah. I mean, we were making great strides until we elected our first black president. Oh! He, was, he, discovered, he brought back, he brought in the Marxism, aggressive um, Marxism, the restorative justice that affected the criminal justice system as well as schools. And it affected the educational system because it made it harder for teachers to suspend kids that really did need to be suspended because mm -hmm. they were violent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you break down what what is that Marxism that you said that you know Obama brought back, got into the school? Like, what does that look like? What? Fine. Well, with uh, President Obama, 
you realize that he started off as a community organizer yeah, yeah. and he taught Saul Alinsky uh, tactics. And Saul Alinsky, you know, was very much a Marxist and he watched the uh, student protesters in, in the 1960s when they were protesting the Democratic Convention. Mm -hmm. And during that time, you know, there was a lot of violence in the, in the 1960s. People were trying to overthrow the system. Um, most of the social movements, the gay rights movements, the women's movement, the environmental movement, as well as um, the black civil rights movement, all of that started in the 1960s. We also got no fault divorce in the 1960s. Yes, and, um, and it was about destroying traditional institutions and mm -hmm. the family, attacks on the family, because in 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, who uh, was a professor, but he later became, he was a professor at Harvard, uh, a senator from New York, he wrote a controversial uh, essay about the black family and the fact that 25% of black households were headed by females, which meant that 75% were not. Yep. That was very controversial and he was roundly attacked and called all sorts of names but by saying that this unhealthy, dysfunctional pattern was developing in the black community. Uh, the, uh, the left the progressives immediately attacked him and the whole idea that two parent families were preferable to other family structures. They said there was a European uh, family structure. Uh. And, um, and they also came up with this uh, argument that to criticize uh, behaviors of people, whether it was violence or, or how they were living their lives, choices that they were making, that you were blaming the victim. And so, uh, so you really couldn't address that. So that's some of the things that took place in the 1960s. But Saul Alinsky watched the protesters and pretty much told them they were going about it all wrong. And that if they wanted to make change, they had to, uh, you know, basically clean themselves up. And so with the infiltration, you know, people went into uh, academia or they went into, you know, institutions like the churches or the government so that they could change them within. And so uh, infiltration, deception and manipulation, how I believe it worked is you got people in the universities and various places, they did not have a lot of power. They were at the bottom, they were the radical, but over time they worked their way through the system as they got into positions of power, they could hire others like themselves, people that thought the way they did. And now many of the university presidents and people like that, they're the radicals of the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, they are running the show now. Yeah. And, and, and they have radicalized the students. So when you have student protesters and black students, the various students demanding things from institutions, you can be sure that there is a faculty member or a group of faculty members that are feeding the students what to ask for. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's all about. And the radical methods of taking over uh, the college president's offices or taking over uh, parts of the institution, holding it uh, people captive until you get what you want, you know, that happened in the 1970s. And that's how a lot of schools got their black studies programs. <laughs> mm. So and then they then they got the, and while I was at Princeton, 
the Asian students uh, did a sit-in at the president's office, and they got an Asian studies program. And uh, you know, Asians are supposed to be, you know, the model minority and well-behaved, mm -hmm. right, right. all of this. Assimilate easily, yeah. right? Yeah, but they uh, did a protest. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but getting back to Obama, uh, you know, he's clearly uh, trained in Marxism, and he surrounded himself with people that, uh, you know, that they uh, thought Mao and uh, some of the people that we would consider communist uh, terrorists and bad people from history, that these were great guys. Mm -hmm. And um, the, uh, the political correctness, like in the 1990s, we were debating about speech codes and which mm -hmm. schools could have speech codes. And generally it was believed that it was a violation of uh, the First Amendment. Right. And they were, they, usually when they were challenged, they failed. Mm -hmm. But um, with political correctness, the trigger warnings, the safe spaces, mm -hmm. and all of those mm -hmm. things, uh, private institutions uh, realize that as a private institution, they have their own constitutional rights and that they have their own ability to decide you know, what um, kind of student that they're going to produce. And so when they impose uh, political correctness and set up the safe spaces and cater to whatever whim a particular identity group wanted, uh, they were able to do that because they call themselves independent private institutions. But the problem with that is that they take federal money. That's right. And like Title um, nine. many of them get over half a billion dollars a year in mm. federal money and they get state money, millions of dollars of state money. And I think they should be considered state actors because of that. And we tried to pursue that when there was a controversy at Vanderbilt over the Christian student groups. Mm -hmm. And that resulted in about half of the student groups losing their uh, recognition as oh, wow. campus organizations, wow. which meant they could not use the email system. They could not recruit. Sure. Uh, Classroom access. Yeah, yeah they had lots yeah. of uh, restrictions placed on them. We tried to pass a state law in Tennessee that would have uh, argued that they were state actors because they were getting these millions of dollars, mm -hmm. the Christian schools, the independent Christian schools opposed it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> because they were taking state they're money. Taking state money they're taking Is money that why too? they oppose it? I think that they wanted to be able to uh, discriminate or themselves mm -hmm. or for whatever reason they did not want the oversight. So when they should have stood with us and defended the Christian groups, they did not. My inclination would be they were taking state money and they didn't want. Right, they wanted to still be able to. Yeah. Um, they wanted to be able freedom. to discriminate against non-Christian groups. Yeah. And that's. But they didn't do that. What they did was they have allowed the political left to remake their campuses. So, yeah. uh, at a Belmont University, a Lipscomb University, yeah. those that were traditionally even Trevecca uh, has some problems that were traditionally Christian, they have uh, allowed themselves to be liberalized to the point that if you are an orthodox Christian, yep. you're very uncomfortable on those campuses. Yep. And they have professors that are very anti, um, uh, well, you know, anti-Bible. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. But the, but the hook for um, college Christian universities Thank you so has, much. has always been um, Title IX and federal funding. Yeah. That's what 
that's what's been the hook in getting Christian universities to basically well, dilute dilute their faith to keep the federal government well, from re- regulating them further. Speak, and speaking of Marx, though, I mean, one of Marx's tenets, tenets yeah, right. is for government to run education. Well, I know, and you think about uh, the public school system, how they mm-hmm. total indoctrination meals today. Yep. Well, that's been happening for a long time. And yes, ma'am. There was a time in our history when teachers' unions actually cared about students and yeah. they were focused on education. <laughs> well, that was, was a bygone that? era. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was that happening in your era? Was that still? Well, I mean, I was not a public school teacher, so I didn't deal with teachers' unions, but I had a friend. Her name is Mary Poplin, and she teaches uh, at Claremont University Graduate School. She teaches, you know, people that are going to be teachers. So she was part of um, the, excuse me, the conferences that the the National Education Association yeah, uh-huh. would put on, and she watched the changes take place. Yeah. And uh, the students now that are, have become teachers have very much been steeped in critical theory. And it's not just critical race theory. We focus on critical race theory, but it's critical theories that are part of Marxism and includes critical queer theory that's very much focused on heterosexuals and homosexuals and their uneven power relationship. (laughs) And that's why they're pushing the uh, transgenders. They're using transgenders. And my problem with that is that the scientific research suggests that people, you know, that uh, have gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. that they're suffering from a treatable illness, uh-huh. and the very fact that they would encourage little boys and little girls through their curriculum, yeah. you know, to identify as something other than their biological sex, that they have teaching materials, some of the LGBT organizations, that uh, let what well, tells little boys or little girls that they may not be a little boy or a little girl, they can choose. Yeah. And so we have an increase of young people that mm-hmm. believe that they were born in the wrong body or they're identifying yeah. with a different sex, well that it was planted into their heads. Right. And, uh, and we have parents, uh, situations where people that are not even biological parents are adopting children. Yep. Uh, there might be two uh, lesbian women, they adopt a little boy and then the next thing you know, they're saying the little boy identifies as a woman yep. and they're transisti- transis- transitioning yeah. that child. Yep. And, um, and that involves hormones and yeah. it involves things that are very destructive to the child, yeah. which seems to me would be a form of child abuse, yeah. but it's not treated as such. <laughs> Why did I get the smaller piece and he gets the bigger? <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> uh, we'll see how this goes. Be nice, Zirpa. Be nice. I think the portion is just to be bigger. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I've never seen anyone order that before. Now I know what it looks like. Yeah. I'm going to give thanks for this real quick. Yeah. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. And Jesus, thank you for Carol and her work. We pray a blessing on her and our time together in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Um, we, uh, uh, I played junior college basketball Thanks, in California. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And when I was moving to Idaho, all my black teammates were like, you're moving to northern Idaho? Mm-hmm. There, I, I, I can't even come and visit. <laughs> well, I mean, Cause I, cause a, stereotype. Yeah, yeah, huge stereotype. 
We, I, we live in a town, University of Idaho, so we're in a college town, and then seven miles to the west of us is Washington State University. Um, so it's two land-grant institutions in a seven-mile radius surrounded by farm fields. So it's actually, it's actually a really nice area. But when you're talking about college professors behind yeah, we, activism, we know that first hundred percent. We've had protests at our events, like our church events and things. It's organized by, by college, professors. college professors or former professors. So we know exactly what you're talking about. They get credits that they show up and protest. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. And you know something, when I was, uh, the time I was a faculty member, the progressive professors would use the email system to recruit mm -hmm. for the campaign. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. um, it has to be interesting. You, when you say, I've seen now there's a couple things that are getting worn out. The first one is Marx. The second one is critical race theory. And so what's happening now is that the word Marxism, where in the 80s it would have sent shrills down the spine of, People of Americans. People think it's wonderful. Socialism, great. Right. But solve now, all of our problems, create a utopia. Right. It, it doesn't have the same effect it did four uh -oh. years ago mm -hmm. at all. Yep, 100%. And so as a person who's kind of in this and studying this, how do you... Get people to see that this is not, this is poison. Because that way they see that. It has to do with the fact that, you know, universities are no longer. Thank you so much. You better share. share. Universities <laughs> are no, no longer educating students. And so they are mm. not getting educated, they're getting indoctrinated. indoctrinated yeah. So they really don't know history. And then the history that they get tends to be. You know, I'm going to say whitewashed for lack of a better term. It's okay. You want it might to be a better oh. term. <laughs> <laughs> now, with CRT, um, it's kind of uh, interesting to watch how all of a sudden parents are now finally getting excited, you know, pushing back. Well, the public schools like like, Why CRT? I'm glad. Right. But, like, how come CRT is all of a sudden, like, there's been evolution in school for years. They've kicked the Bible out. They've kicked prayer out. They've kicked, you know, they've been doing LGBT curriculum for, for decades. Um, they've been teaching sex, sex, sex ed all the way down to like third grade. You know, why all of a sudden CRT is kind of like, all right, now I'm fed That's up. enough. That's enough. Well, I can tell you that uh, Fox News has been covering it for months, at least for mm. six months. And I've been on, and I strongly urge parents to push back and protect their children. And I was wondering what was wrong with white people. In fact, I gave a talk in the fall and I said, what's wrong with you all? Mm -hmm. Because uh, why aren't you defending your children? Why are you allowing them to be bullied and shamed because of the color of their skin? Mm -hmm. Many parents told me that they were afraid that if they challenged the schools, that uh, that child would be targeted, mm -hmm. that that child would be harassed. Mm -hmm. But what happened is that it got so bad that parents started organizing together. Mm -hmm. And so they did draw the line. And I think what is different about today is that COVID, or whatever the backstory is on COVID, that parents got to overhear some of what was being taught to their children. Zoom classroom. And, and then the children oh, also came home mm -hmm. uh, with nice. assignments that made the parents uncomfortable, and then their teachers that are uncomfortable. That's so I think that it's a combination of factors that have come together, and it has awakened a sleeping giant, and mamas have become mama bears, and fathers have become papa bears, and a lot of the people that are actually uh, involved in fighting back are immigrants, 
or they are racial and <laughs> yeah. ethnic minorities because they see the harm. It to came from. Yep. We, That's we, interesting. You know that, that it's interesting that she says immigrants because remember, um, who was it Joseph Backholm that we mm -hmm, talked to mm -hmm. about? He was a guy that was helping organize political operative uh, in Washington, in Washington State, mm -hmm. uh, just trying to get people out to vote. That's all he was trying to do is just get conservatives out to vote. And he would go visit churches, and you try to get white evangelical churches. churches. And he told us the like the white evangelical churches were all just like, well, you know, we're not really sure. We, you know, we want to be political and all this kind of thing. And he said, I had the warmest welcomes with a lot of the immigrant churches. That's right. And, and he said, and they would welcome me right in because a lot of them come from Eastern Europe, right. yeah. um, or China, or, or whatever, or Cuba, yeah. and they've yeah. seen it firsthand, and they're they like, have, yeah. That's why they're in America. Exactly, and they're like, they, they, they know exactly what's going on, and they're like, tell us where to go, we'll vote. Mm -hmm. And um, that's mm -hmm. interesting, well, that's interesting. Well, white evangelicals, especially the Southern Baptists, you know something, my spiritual journey took me to the Southern Baptist, and I didn't know why I was there. Mm. You know, I thought I was there because I spoke at a church uh, about my book, uh, Be the People, mm -hmm. and I met some people, and I went on a mission trip, and I started attending their events, and eventually, because I was attending their church more than I was attending my church, I joined the Southern Baptist Church. But then, maybe two or three years later, they had this controversy over critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And so, yep. my Christian journey, you, I could argue that God sent me to Nashville, and he sent me to that Baptist church because he knew that the Baptists were going to be torn apart by critical race theory, oh, and they needed someone that understood who was taking place. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, I'm, yeah. we say God is involved with a lot of things that maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But I think that that's why I'm in the Baptist church. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, so I was going to bring this up. Yeah. Uh -huh. You were there this past time too here in, in Nashville, right? Uh, yeah, I was trying to speak. I, I, I was trying to get to a mic, so I was trying to get to you. I was at the at mic. The time. Were and you at the mic? I was standing at the mic when, when someone called the question. Uh, but they said, um, oh, we randomly choose. I had been there two days. Everyone knew I was there. Everyone knew that I, yeah. why I was there. Yeah. And they chose not to let me or any of the other minorities that were going to speak wow. against critical race theory. We did not get to speak. And wow. so I was very offended. I had a bee in my bonnet for weeks. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I was trying to figure out how did... So uh, there was a documentary that came out in 2009, well, 2019 about what had happened at the... Did you were you paying attention at all to like what happened in two thousand nineteen? By what standard what, documentary? Well, just what happened. I knew so, what happened that they yes. adopted that, uh, critical CRT race theory. and intersectionality resolution and nine. Yeah. Yes, yep. exactly. And so I've written about it and I've spoken about it and I knew about it and that was one of the reasons I was recruited to go to the convention. And I had a busy schedule. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had other places to be. Uh-huh. And I changed my schedule. To go to the convention thinking that I would get to, I thought, and so I assume that people are innocent, that these are well meaning white folks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. <Yeah. laughs> no agenda. And that I could explain to them, I mean, that I could just share about mm -hmm. what I knew, yeah. my knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't get to speak. And so, I mean, and it wasn't an accident. I don't think it was an accident. It was not at an all. accident. They pretend, oh, no, it's just what? random. And and it wasn't an accident that the question was called. I think the whole thing was staged. 
And I think the yeah. Southern Baptists have been taken over from within, Solomonsky style, Ooh. and that you know that it's not it's focused on appearances. Like they were so concerned about what the media would say or how they would look yes. that they chose the easy way well, out. When when they're so concerned about how it looks, why would they not let you speak, <laughs> even at least on that level? Well, they had a black person on the stage, and they was fulfilling the need to show their diversity. Wow. And then they had these white, you know, the, you this, the guy who was, the, what they, he was the, well, the head of the committee or something like that. Yeah, he was castigating yeah. people, right. murdered. I may be getting his name wrong. Yeah, yeah. I know you're talking about um, Sean, uh, Merritt. Yeah, but what... Uh, James Merritt. James Merritt. I mean, just how he uh, tried to shame and bully. They allowed one white person to speak. They, You know, this man, bless his heart. Uh, <laughs> they, they I know what that means. The yep. <laughs> person to speak that was white, who was trying to explain it, and he was older. And so then he was like a foil for the guy that could shoot him mm -hmm. down. And you're just part of this racist problem. And implied man. that, you know, the man had a problem with race. Um, if they really, and then the question was called before I or any of the other racial ethnic minorities who were standing up there at microphones, we had filled out the paperwork because you had to fill out the paperwork. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's a yeah, statement. Yeah, 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 and all of that was done, and so um, they knew exactly what they were doing. It wasn't random. When, so uh, right, after, right, right afterwards, I, I heard you on a few interviews and radio stations and stuff, and you were explaining all this. So you've been they're fairly vocal about what happened. You not heard from anybody at the SBC saying, you know, sorry about that, or we, no, didn't, they, we didn't mean to do that. Well, or, I, I mean, say I, it. <laughs> Get them. <laughs> My pastor called me in, along with uh, someone who is, I think, maybe may on the executive committee that's in our church. Okay. And um, apparently, there were some congregants that were very concerned about uh, what had happened because they were my Facebook or Twitter followers, so they knew my side of it. And so the, uh, the, the head of the elders who was called in, he wanted to explain to me that it was random and that I was not singled out and that they didn't prevent me from speaking. But I wasn't buying it. And, uh, <laughs> but, but, that, but that happened. And initially, you know, I'm thinking, because I thought I was just meeting with the pastor. Oh my, I've been called before the elders. <laughs> they call you before the elders before they're going to kick you out. There's two elders there. But um, I have a friend who was a lifelong Southern Baptist white. She told me before the meeting, she said, they will not allow you to speak. They will shut you down. And she said, no, you've not been called before the elders. She said, the elders probably didn't even know you were there. She said, you had a meeting, you know, with mm -hmm. three people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, yeah, that's it. So what, would, what were you going to say? <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say. Um, I was, uh, a lot of times I would respond to what other people have said. Mm -hmm. But I would have uh, pointed out that, that critical race theory and intersectionality have no place in the church that biblical justice and social justice are not the same thing and that the church should be leading the way when it comes to race relations and that we have plenty of scriptures that we should be modeling love to the rest of the world. So that's part of what I was going to say. The, when you were talking about critical theory, that's something that people overlook a lot. And so people, 
I realized, and this, this term is changing, so it's kind of hard to wrap my head around um, critical race theory now on how people, it's not hard to wrap my head around how people are using it, mm -hmm. but hard to wrap my head around the definition. But well, critical theory itself seems like what we really need to plan our time at and then apply that across the, the different. Well, you have to realize that while we focus on critical race theory, it's very important because it is a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its amendments, especially the ones that relate to education in 1972. Um, and it runs counter to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And then it runs counter, I would say, to human decency. In America, we don't shame and bully people because of the color of their skin or some immutable characteristics. Mm. And so the focus is on critical race theory, but also taking place in our schools is a critical feminist theory where males, young men, young boys are being shamed because they are male and they're being accused of having toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And so little boys are being encouraged not to be little boys. Mm -hmm. And uh, males in the, uh, in the, at the university say that in classes they're made to feel like words that I as a good Southern Christian lady can't say. <laughs> they're being made to feel uh, terrible about who they are, about yeah. being a man, you know, and yeah. trying to be a gentleman, the way they were raised. That is taking place and that also is a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because it banned discrimination on the basis of sex and hmm. of course it's been applied to women all these years but it also protects males. And so uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I think many white people, when you say civil rights, they think, oh, it's something for minorities. The Civil Rights Act banned um, discrimination on the account of race, uh, you know, ethnicity, national origin, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and as well as religion and sex. And so it protects white people, it protects males. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's some other protected groups now, but they are protected by the Civil Rights Act and part of um, the remedies. And with my new book, this one, Black Eye for America, uh, we talk about ways that you can combat it. I was going to, that was my follow-up uh, question on and, this. And yeah, the first thing is, um, well, first, there are two chapters on fighting back, and one is on strategies. And one of the strategies is what is taking place now, exercising your voice. Mm -hmm. Standing up, making you know your position clear, and taking a position. Exit, pull your kids out of the school or leave the environment, mm -hmm. and then um, more like insurgency or guerrilla tactics, where um, you know you do the um, veritas uh, uh, type of hidden camera. You mm -hmm. catch them, you know, violating the civil rights law or bullying or intimidating a child. And so you're gathering information, but the way you really defeat it, I think, is first know what it is, where it came from, how it impacts our society, and then use the legal and constitutional means that already exist to fight it. Then um, organizing grassroots movements to elect school boards, city council members, mayors, and, um, and challenging indoctrination efforts like the 1619 Project or whatever it is. Uh, within their respective uh, domains. And we know with CRT, a lot of times when parents or someone challenges it, they're told, oh, no, 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 we're not doing CRT, we're doing culturally mm -hmm. sensitive learning. No, we're doing diversity <laughs> right. and equity. No, we're doing educational equity. No, we're doing social justice. 
but if it is uh, elevating one group above another, if it's demeaning uh, another group, if it involves bullying and shaming, it's CRT. Yeah. And um, we advocate that you build broad coalitions across, across racial, ethnic, and partisan lines. This is an American problem. It affects everyone. And so uh, for people to believe that this is a conservative issue or this is a Christian issue, Christians are targeted, though. Religion is involved. Yeah. The Christian religion is the only one that's been singled out and targeted uh, in a way that is meant to shame and bully. Um, use multiple strategy, multiple strategies, and uh, you know, if you all in media, you know, media is very important. Christian media, you know, is really uh, is hitting new strides, mm -hmm, and that's mm -hmm. needed. Hundred percent. Yeah. But multiple strategies, town hall meetings, writing op-eds, contacting public officials, organizing rallies, uh, just multiple ways of uh, attacking a problem, educating church leaders and encouraging them to lead on racial issues, using biblical justice, which is not the same as uh, social yep. justice, standing mm -hmm. up to big tech, monitoring state and local governments, federal government, making sure that your tax dollars are not subsidizing, <laughs> subsidizing it, and mm -hmm. it is and then developing alternatives to DEI. And that's one of the things I've done through my new company, Unity Training Solutions, that's based on the um, national motto, E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. And it um, has training and education that's consistent with our civil rights laws, our constitution, and just human decency of, that values individuals and the golden rule to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And uh, so this last chapter talks about these proposals, goes into detail. This book, this new book, has a glossary, index, uh, um, appendices with resources, mm -hmm. and uh, citations, and it's short. That's really. That's really. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you brought us copies. You know, I want to sign too. Exactly, one hundred percent. And so it seems to me um, we we kind of gotten ourselves in this problem that we're in is because we've kind of been playing with Marxism for a long time. I yes. mean, you know, Toby pointed out earlier. You know, public education is a Marxist play. It started when the Frankfurt School, uh, you know, fled Germany mm -hmm. and took up camp at Columbia <laughs> University. Mm -hmm. And from there, they trained, you know, professors and teachers that spread out across the country, yep. taking those ideas. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the, I think it was Lenin that talked about the, the what's the long march? You just needed 5% of the long march through the institutions. Yeah, that's what they've done, and they've been very successful. And, like, as a Christian, we know that end times, it's supposed to get worse, and, and you know, and there are people with COVID and mandatory vaccines, and... Uh, even with um, uh, with COVID, that seems to be a critical theory, but I haven't come up with what hmm. to call it. It's a critical medical theory, critical scientific theory. Hmm. It's yep. some kind of critical theory critical because, theory. Well, well. Maybe because it divides people between the vaccinated yep. and the unvaccinated. That's a really good point. And it yeah. dehumanizes really people that are unvaccinated. It says that they are evil, that yep. they're trying to kill their neighbors. Yep. And... Um, and there are doctors that have said that they will refuse to treat people who become ill that were unvaccinated. Yeah. And so there's, um, that is playing along the same script, the same yeah. Marxist that's a, script. That's a really good point. Yeah. I, I haven't thought about it like that. But I haven't that. figured out what to call it. Yeah. I'm still working on that. Critical medical theory? <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> Something I like critical bat theory. <laughs> um, 
so, so we've been. But it is, it, it plays, yeah, it's playing out like a critical theory and then the suppression of information. And what yes. I see in America is that George Orwell, you know, he, I believe mm -hmm. he was a socialist himself, but he was also a prophet. He saw yep. Because yeah. he has totally yep. gotten it right. Mm -hmm. And I think we're living in an Orwellian nightmare here in America mm -hmm. and that it's part of global, globalization, yep. uh, the suppression of information because people who are getting vaccinated and people who are trying to make decisions are not being given complete information. And the government, our government, was willing to let hundreds of thousands of people die rather than take treatments that yep. doctors knew were available. In fact, in California and some states, doctors were told for the first time that they could not prescribe certain drugs. And these yep. were drugs that would save lives. That happened in Idaho. Yeah, our, yeah, our governor yeah, signed an executive order for, against hydroxychloroquine. For a little while. Yeah, got, for a little while. Reversed, but there was for a little yeah. bit. You know, it seems like one of the things with Marxism and then even with all these critical theories that, that makes Christians susceptible to them is that there are these lies that are laced with small truths. Well, I can tell you there's some Baptist pastors in town. You know who you are, so I'm not going to call you out. <laughs> oh, it's okay. We don't mind. Yeah, we don't mind at all. <laughs> but, you know, they have uh, done videos where they're evoking the word of God and and they're, they're really good mm -hmm. with that. And they ended with, if you love your neighbor, you have to wear a mask or yep. you have to get vaccinated. Yeah. Rick Warren did that twisted. on yeah. national TV. Yeah. Well, no, and they're not, you know, like instead of um, in the past, <coughs> uh, generations ago, when we had smallpox yes. outbreaks yep. and bubonic plague and all of these kind of plagues, because plagues have been around forever, yep. the Christians were the ones that ministered to the sick. And, yep. you know, that uh -huh. people... The neighbors saw them ministering to the sick. They went in. They believed that God uh, controlled their days, nope. and so they did not live their lives by fear. Their lives by fear, and all of a sudden, you have all these pastors that are parroting the government agenda, and it reminds me of Nazi Germany. Those churches wow. that were silent and um, that went along with the government, yep. and then they are taking money from the government. Uh, those pastors ought to be ashamed of themselves, and they uh, are not teaching. They allow their congregants to live in fear, and there are some churches I am told that have not even reopened. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that won't be yeah. a bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we're glad for that. All right. Those, yeah. those churches. Well, yeah. I, was, I was thinking, like, I mean, I I know that's exactly what I'm talking about, but it's like, so I mean, even back in with Marx, like he would point at, I mean, he, his theory was all about um, economic oppression. Like, you know, he, you know the, the oppression of the, the upper class and the bourgeoisie against the proletariat, the working class. And then, of course, what, um, what the Frankfurt School did and others is they've now shifted that to other classes well, of people. Well, Marx, you know, died broke. Yes, ma'am. I think eight people yeah. attended his funeral uh -huh. in yeah. the late 1800s. Yeah, he was a And so rascal. his disciples... You know, Antonio Gramsci yeah. was one of the ones that uh, came up with what was cultural hegemony. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, and so they saw that the problem was the culture. That's why economic Marxism failed. Work, yeah. And uh, and they saw Christianity in particular right. as being a problem. Mm -hmm. And so they set about changing the culture from within. And they saw that the public education, like sex uh, education, that came from one of the Marxists, I can't remember which one it was, that, that 
developed, you know, sex education in school, yeah. but it was to separate the children as much as possible from the teachings of their parents. That's right. Mm -hmm. And what is happening today is a lot of public school uh, public schools are not giving any homework. They are making the children do it all in school. They don't want to take it home. They don't want the parents to see what they're teaching. Yep. Wow. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I was just looking at your Twitter thread, and you made a comment that I wholeheartedly agree with. Um, it was about 9-11. You, someone had asked you if we're ever going to get our freedoms back from 9-11. And you said, no. <laughs> basically, you don't get those freedoms back. No, Once you lose those freedoms, gone. they are gone. And that was one thing I, I realized with COVID is that 20 years ago, for, this, for the sake of staying safe, we gave up liberties that we should have never given up. Right. Uh, bad thing happened, yes. Through a private-public partnership. Right. But, and we gave it up, up those freedoms. Mm -hmm. Once again, 20 years later, we have COVID come, and for the sake of staying safe, yep. we do the same thing again. Private public and, uh, those freedom... Same people involved. It's all about power. And, uh, you know, the political left, they've said never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they create mm -hmm. crises, and then they use them to gain power. And they never uh, relinquish the power once they have it. So with that, knowing what you said about that, we're not going to get those liberties back. I think it takes some, maybe my grandkids might at some point. But why would they be able to get it back? I mean, it's like because they're in your book. No longer. <laughs> <laughs> they read your book. That's, that's you I gave them a play. I, I hope that God uses me to be able to uh, cause people to think, yeah, and to ponder and to decide. And I. I don't know how this happened, but I got to do a two-hour C-SPAN interview on Saturday. <laughs> it started off kind of like a gotcha, but um, it uh, and I made a comment about it, and then the um, interviewer shifted. Shifted, mm. yeah. But I was able to talk about honestly about some of the things I see and I believe. And we're all going to die someday. Mm -hmm. And a caller asked me, you know, he said he couldn't imagine how much threats I must get and how horrible it must be to be me. And no, I enjoy being me and I don't live my mm -hmm. life in fear. And maybe I'm totally naive, but I just don't live my life in fear. But I know that I will die one day. But God knows the date, the time, mm -hmm. the manner, Amen. the place of my death. Yep. If it's going to be COVID, it's going to be COVID. I don't think it's going to be COVID could be violence, but it's already in the books. It's already written. Amen. Yes, ma'am. And I will live as long as God wants me to live. And so um, I believe that that is the proper Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. And if that is the Christian perspective, why would you live your life in fear? That's mm -hmm. right. So, and the Bible even says in Scripture, whoever thinks he's going to save his life will lose it. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're going to get back any of what we've lost with critical race theory? I think critical race theory, if... Uh, uh, it, it reaches court, will fall in two years. It's going to be two years for it to be declared unconstitutional and for it to get out of our institutions. But you think about it, affirmative action has been around since yep. uh, the um, mid-1960s, 1970s, and critical race theory is a layer on top of that more aggressive layer, a layer that even sets us backwards because it's discriminatory, it's resegregating a lot of institutions. Right. And um, we will probably get rid of its most blatant forms, but they will figure out another way to make distinctions because of the power that's involved. And the group that's being 
hurt the most, I would say, our racial and ethnic minorities, the whole idea that they would make the argument and that Bill Gates, the Bill Gates Foundation would fund mm -hmm. research that says math is racist and that teachers should not um, demand, you know, correct math uh, right. answers from minority students. Oh, man. And the, mm -hmm. the assumption is that they're incapable of, because of yep. this systemic racism of doing math. And just See, think about the slap in the face of now. black mathematicians and black architects right. and mm -hmm. uh, well, scientists. Mm -hmm. and you can forget about musicians. having another black Wall Street like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah you can't do math. Yeah, but they're, they're going along with these things. And standard English, and you may remember when the Smithsonian did some type of graph. Yep. Where they said getting to places on time that was white and planning <laughs> for the we, we talked about that on the show. Yeah. And, um, Tr traditional family is whiteness, Everything right? that yep. people... Protestant like, work ethic. People like me have done to be successful. Mm -hmm. They're calling all that whiteness. Mm -hmm. and, and so the message is that they are sending to young people mm -hmm. uh, are destructive. Mm -hmm. And as a child, I just longed to see the Smithsonian. I mean, that was my dream. And mm. when I started doing my research on my dissertation, I went to D.C. for the first time, and that was the first place I went. Oh, wow. They have destroyed the Smithsonian. Ooh, yeah. I mean, the Smithsonian is not uh, mm. this educational place uh, that presents history in an accurate kind of way. It has been taken over by the political left. It's all indoctrination. It's mm -hmm. all uh, revisionism. And uh, it's part of the decline. And I see America, if God gives us what we deserve, our nation will fall. And it will probably fall to China or uh, one of the uh, Middle Eastern countries. Wow. Because uh, not only did we turn our back on God, but we have been allowed to do what we want to do, and so we're creating uh, creatures, you know, half human, half animal, allowing them, first they said they can only live for three days, now they can live for two weeks. And uh, we don't know how many humans that may have been cloned, because there are people that actually, you know, they've been mm -hmm. cloning animals since mm -hmm. Dolly the Sheep. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so much evil that's taking place uh, in our nation. If God stuff. is God, I don't see how he can't hold us accountable. So here's, here's my bone to pick with conservatives. Okay. Is I, I think conservatives have been pretty good at, you know, maybe analyzing on the surface what's going on. They've been, I think, pretty good to identify what critical race theory is trying to do. Um, but I don't think they take the they don't go back far enough. Um, you know, for, we've been handing our kids over to public school, so they've been educated by that system for a long time. So we, we're kind of walking around with one blind eye already because we've been indoctrinated in that process already. But here's the problem. Yeah. The Christian schools are doing it too. 100%. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. You're not wrong. So you you're not wrong. You have to educate mm -hmm. your child at home, mm -hmm. or you're going to have to hold your mm -hmm. Christian schools accountable. Yep. And money and dollars talk. Yep. And I think that, uh, and I'm finding this happening, that there's some very wealthy elderly people in their 80s that have been supporting independent schools or various places, and they don't like this critical theory. Yep. And yep. in one particular case, a man that's given as much as $6 million to a, an independent school, mm -hmm. If they continue this path, he will withdraw his money. The school Good will collapse. Good for him. Yep. And so they have to um, use tactics like that to yes. be heard. Yes, you do. So there's a good Christian classical school movement going on nationwide. There's about three, 400 schools part of it. Um, there's a homeschool, classical conversations homeschool movement. 
um, and it's real top quality education based in the foundations of the Word of God. But that I don't. I, I'm happy to talk about education, but I, I think part of the the problem, part of where we've already been compromised, is we've allowed evolution in our schools, and that's the found. That's it's not critical theory that's the foundation. Uh-huh. It's evolution that's uh-huh. the foundation foundation of critical theory, and then into critical race theory. Because Darwin's Darwin's theory it rests on the idea that everything is material, and everything is power. Mm-hmm. It's materialism and power. So if uh-huh. everything is material, In categories. There's no God. There's no soul. There's no heaven. You aren't made. Then everything's material, and then it's just one step to say let's classify these material things, mm-hmm. you know, into all the you know black, male, female, white, whatever it is, rich, and then who's poor, got the most power, and then who has the most power. It's, the, it's a very natural consequence that comes straight from Darwin's yeah. theory if there's no creator and we're not made in his image. Well, I mean, the church has you know, said or done whatever they're going to do about evolution. And then when young people go to college, if they go to a secular school, if they want to do well on the test, they're going to just give the teacher back what he or she wants. Yep. They, yep. They, mm-hmm. And that may be wise if they're going to be strategically placed in the future. But maybe that's a good way to respond. But I think the Baptists, one of their problems is that they get their teaching materials from Lifeway. <laughs> and uh, that they would be much better off if they had uh, men and women, Sunday school teachers that were steeped in the Word of God who developed their own Sunday school lessons yes, rather ma'am. than go with something that was already packaged. So they're getting their stuff the same place Ed Litton is getting his for the most part? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 They are. I mean, yeah. So I, I might disagree a little bit with you on, you know, your, you made the comment about being strategically placed in the future. You, you make your moves and, and you know how and you might be strategically placed in the future so maybe don't don't push back or whatever I what are you I, talking about you, you just made the comment earlier that you might want to just kind of answer what the teacher says because oh, well, you might you well, might be strategically placed somewhere in the future here's what I'm thinking this is just me thinking yes ma'am I'm not speaking as a great theologian or a perfect Christian I'm just thinking for myself that's not an option because I've always been out in your face but I have been critical in my life, closet Christians, and now I'm less critical of them okay. because I think we need some. Mm-hmm. We need some people that no one knows who you are, like the one, uh, the rich man that was a follower of Jesus, and he, oh, Joseph of Arimathea, they gave up his tomb. Yeah. He gave him his tomb. Mm-hmm. They didn't know until you know he gave his tomb. It took up. something radical to yeah. happen. And yeah. so I think that uh, we need people that are strategically placed. And so if someone is called, um, if, if, a, if, if you're a Christian believer and God is unctioning you to speak, then you should speak. Mm-hmm. But there are times when you need to be quiet. Mm-hmm. And I think that for young people, that we shouldn't put too much burden on them, that they should be very strategic. And I've told some young people that you can challenge a professor just by asking a question innocently. Yeah. I thought, is evolution a theory or is it a fact? Or what about such and such? You do it in such a nice, innocent way, mm-hmm. but you don't have to, you know, stand up and sure. do a particular thing. And I can tell you that when I'm, God puts someone in my path and they may not be a believer, but they're spiritual. Well, part of my life story is that I was on a journey and I was, I've read lots of materials, materials and studied Eastern religions and New Age and all of that stuff. And people are different places in their journey. 
And so I might um, uh, start talking with someone and I recommend to them the alchemist um, as a, a, it's a fable written by this Brazilian um, uh, Christian mm -hmm. uh, because I think that it's deeply spiritual. It has God in it and that's where they are. You know, and so maybe I'm watering someone else, you know, uh, or planting and someone else can water, mm -hmm. but I don't tell them you got to read the Bible and, and, you know, and receive Jesus today mm -hmm. because I think this is where they were. And I think about myself and my journey and different people were part of, of leading sure. me to my conversion. Uh, and so that's sort of how I approach things. And yeah. I've never been um, the four spiritual laws type of Christian mm -hmm. where we get this little book. I tried it. <laughs> you know, I found a victim and, I, and they agreed to sit yeah. down with me uh -huh. and I went over the book with them yeah. and they parroted what mm -hmm. they were supposed to say and then, you know, I, I told them they were saved. Um, that's not, that doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I could get in a conversation with someone and share my testimony and um, and I feel like that I'm more effective as a believer because I can identify with the journey and the struggle. And sure. I was a sincere seeker, but I didn't get saved until I was in my 40s. I, I didn't know who Christ was until I was in my 40s. Yeah. But after I got saved, God took me backwards and I could see that he was always yeah. there. Yeah. I could, God showed me all the places where yes, he was. Yes, and so my journey enables me to talk to people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Yeah. And, um, and so... I think in terms of strategy, master strategies, yeah. and I see a, us as being in a war. Yeah. And I think in a war, the rules of engagement differ. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, which is why, as a Christian, I don't have a problem with deception when we're in a battle. If I'm in a war, well, I prefer I to call it. I know it means the same thing. Yeah. I prefer to call it subterfuge. Yeah. But the meaning is deception. Mm -hmm. But just a little bit of. But the Hebrew midwives, the they right. were they were in a war right. and they lied to, to Pharaoh mm -hmm. and his and, and they his got rewarded for it. And and, amen. Exactly. And, you know. Exactly. So, so well, you, you can. When you have uh, another example, what you're talking about is Obadiah in the in the um, time of Elijah. Elijah's got the. He's the, got the megaphone. He's uh -huh. the one telling Ahab, you know, you guys are in trouble for worshiping Baal. And that's why there's this, this um, you know, this drought for uh -huh. three years. Mm -hmm. But Obadiah is this guy in the king's right. court. Uh -huh. And he's hiding the prophets, priest, the, the prophets uh -huh. of God, uh -huh. um, you know, 500 in a cave. Uh -huh. And he's bringing the king's food and to he's, feed him. And he's, still, he's working in Ahab's and Jezebel's court. And I, like, I'm still scratching my head on how he did that. But I think it you makes, your, trust it. makes your point, though. It makes your point that there's, we need people. Uh, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I think you have to have a line. You and do. you have to know where that line well, is. Daniel knew the line exactly. where he served a, a pagan king. Exactly. But if you know where the line is... Then I think you're right. There are places you're not going to get it from Sunday school in most places. That's, that's exactly right. Vacation Bible school is not right. going to do You it. can't keep saying, "Okay, this compromise will be okay. This compromise will be okay." You've got to be willing to know where the line is, and then you say, "I will not cross this line." You've got to be willing to lose everything. In that instance, like Daniel and, and his three friends, and, and I would also to add to that though. But like the, the thing that Daniel also did was he also picked fights. So he came yeah. into Babylon saying, "I'm not going to eat anything but vegetables." Now there's no. There's no Jewish no, law. He very nicely uh, decided that he that whatever they were feeding them, he knew that he could need it. They may have had bacon what? and ham. And yeah, but he could have he could have had a diet seafood. that didn't have to do with vegetables. 
Yeah, he could have. Like, but he came in Babylon as a slave mm-hmm. and said, I want, th- please serve me this. Mm-hmm. And so he picked, he picked a fight that I think, and, and I think the, the point there with what Daniel was doing was he was doing something and he was picking a fight in such a way that he knew God would be victorious in that. And what happens is when we go to, when, when our kids go to college or, you know, I went to University of Idaho, I went to actually three colleges mm-hmm. and, and finished at University of Idaho. And there's, and one of the things I learned in that process was to pick the right fights. Uh-huh. Um, and it's always, you know, I'm always encouraging people to do it with their gifts and their abilities. Well, wait a minute. If we believe that the Holy Spirit indwells a believer and yeah. God is leading us and, you know, and directing us, then why wouldn't we believe that some of the decisions that we think we're making, that God is actually steering those decisions? And um, so I think that some of those things that we're doing that we're thinking we're making those choices, we're not really making those choices. God's sovereign over it all. As much as we think we are. Yeah, God's God's, God's sovereign sure. over it all. And, and so we're trying to do the best with what we can see as Christians, but standing on the word of God. Right. And we're trying to make the best moves that we can see in front of us. Right. And so I, I, you know, I, when I, when we're having this conversation, when I have this conversation with college students, I'm saying, you, you know, you're leaning in with your gifts and your abilities. Don't do I don't expect you to do what I did because you got different gifts than I do. But I, I, I do want you to think like a Christian at wherever classroom you're at right, and how to that. lean into it. Well, here's another issue uh, that I experienced with Christian students. If they were applying, particularly, particularly to medical school, mm-hmm. there were interviews. Yep. And they maybe asked questions about abortion or various issues like that. Ooh. And... Um, and that would be a concern. And I felt that that was one of those areas where they had to be very strategic, very careful. You know, maybe one or two was called to give a Christian witness and not get into the school, or maybe they would get mm-hmm. in. But I think that um, in situations like that, subterfuge, it depends on how they do it. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. think um, that, you know, here's, here's you want the- people placed in positions. I would be more leaning that way if 2020 racked up a little different. If we had pastors at that point to hold their ground and say, God has given me this authority, the federal government or the local entities don't get to shut us down. Because I think there are a group of Christians out there that use that excuse as points not to engage at all. Oh, I'm, I'm, I know that, and yeah. I know some pastors that blow with the wind, whichever political yeah. party is like you were talking about earlier, yeah. 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 they go with that, and that's problematic. But, it, but watching, and here's what, like, John MacArthur what? has been training pastors for, what, 40, 50 years? A long time. For a long time. You know, you think about 40 years of pastor training going out planting churches in America, when it came time for him to stand up and they did, there wasn't a whole lot of wind he, in their sails. He from didn't the disciple them, there, the, the pastors that people. well. <laughs> it was, they didn't have a whole lot of folks standing with them. It was crickets. That, that was fear, so much fear. Yep. And that, that's and that right. death thing, and it's just so much manipulation that's been involved with the way COVID has been handled. Yep. And I think that, it, that COVID, 19 and how it's been handled by the government is a dress rehearsal for the mark of the beast mm-hmm. and the government knows exactly what they can do because people are just going to line up and the ones that don't line up they're going to treat them the way they treat the unvaccinated mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. yep. yeah. you got a godly man like that 
like who's who? John MacArthur. Yeah. He's been faithful over these years, and he stands up, and you've been trained underneath that kind of godliness. I think you haven't had faculties of being faithful when yeah. practice that and, weapon. And, that, and that's the challenge, is, is like, in order to stand they strong, seem smart, and they want to seem be loved, and right, and, they yeah. but, and, and so, but they, they but, but frequently, what they'll do though is then, in the name of seeming smart, not getting canceled, uh -huh. they say, "I'm practicing subterfuge." You know, I, 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 I hope they're not saying that. Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they are. Actually. But but because I, I think there's a difference. But I, I know what you're. I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You're you're talking about picking your battles strategically while still knowing whose team you're on. No, but I mean with the churches. I don't, I don't think the churches should have shut down. Oh yeah, no, I agree. Oh, 100%. Completely, hundred yeah, percent. Because you believe God controls life and death, and uh, and it's already foreordained when, mm -hmm. how. Uh, the place yep. of when someone's going to die, yep. then you wouldn't be assuming, you know, that the person can control it by wearing a mask or right. whatever the government. Sure, said. that was fantastic. Sure, oh, that was so oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, you like the talk of sound? Yeah, that was good. actually really good. Girl, I got to ask you before we go. Yeah. So, have you seen the? I think it was a little bit ago. There's two questions. One of them is, are the Southern Baptists going to make it? Because I'm really concerned about. I think the Southern Baptist Convention is one of the last standing pillars. Of, it was. It was. Uh oh, he, she so just answered answer, answer the question. We, we pose, America is America going to make it? Because it's not the country that I recognize. <laughs> wow. Uh, from my childhood. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's a quick answer. The other one was. <laughs> what do you? Well, here's good. what's the problem with the Southern Baptist is that they don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh. Some of the pastors. Mic drop. <laughs> they, they really don't. Here's why. Because they're so ashamed of how they were founded. Oh. Mm. And yeah. they can't forgive themselves uh, yeah. or, mm. or receive Christ's forgiveness. For that. Because they have confessed it. I've lost track of how many times the Southern Baptists, yep. I'm just talking about the convention, not just the individual pastors, yep. mm -hmm. have confessed, you know, the racism, sin of and racism and slavery and, and, slavery and yep. all that. Yeah. Yep. And um, yeah, every year they're back at it again, aren't they? And they the, the Presbyterian Church has done that, too. Yeah, That's the Presbyterians are doing and it, too. And here's the thing, yep. too, is that the civil rights activists have no incentive to let them off the hook because it's too... Uh, lucrative. He's working. And they're getting money from Man. like Southern Baptists. It's don't tell them how much. In fact, I was told that uh, 150, I read, 150 churches that showed up at the convention to vote on the resolution, that they had their expenses paid. Yes. To be there. Yes. Someone okay. were getting bust in from entity So they groups. got vacations. They got vacations in Nashville. That's a, you know, a popular wow. vacation destination. Wow. And they're being um, part of a shakedown mm. uh, because of that guilt. And instead of them talking about uh, forgiveness, and, and as far as racial reconciliation, one side can't reconcile. Like yeah. it takes two sides coming together to reconcile. But now you're doing math again. Uh. <laughs> I'm, not good, I'm not good at math, but I know that one side can't do it all. Yes, ma'am. And to expect to say that one side, you know, is so superior that they control the fate of the other side, that's racism itself. Yes, ma'am. And, uh, and so it's a lot of pandering that takes place. And with the Southern Baptist Convention, until they actually start preaching the word of God, what God says about race, and, and responsibility uh, and um, forgiveness. Like how many times does the Bible talk about forgiveness? And so the pastors will, might have one or two blacks in some of their congregations, 
that may have a chip on their shoulders yep. and they're allowing those people to dictate, exactly. you know, for everyone else. Mm. And I think that that is a problem. And I don't believe that the church is racist and that's why Sunday is supposed to be the most segregated day. I think that a lot of black people don't like white, what they see as white music. That's true. And, uh, and, and there are <laughs> other denominations where, you know, they don't like, uh, I go to my Baptist church, I can be sure that I'm going to be out uh, maybe in an hour, uh, but maybe, maybe a little bit over. But I'm not going to be there two hours. I go to no. Pentecostal church and I might be there three hours. Well, the Baptist church, they follow that bulletin. Yeah, they do. They do. And, I, and so, I mean, I think people make choices based on what they want and what they have it. planned. And so, That's good. I so, just wish people would exercise more common sense on these issues. Well, we don't have a lot of that, the, which is why this one is going to be interesting. I just want to hear you talk about Larry Elder being the new face of white supremacy. I just would love to hear you. Well, <laughs> as usual, I'm always a path breaker. So in 2009, I had re two things happened. One is I wrote an opinion piece that summer. At that time, I was writing for the Huffington, Huffington Post. What? And I, it was um, um, Mission Creek about the Southern Poverty Law Center. So I criticized them. And I said, instead of uh, marching hate groups, the Southern Poverty Law Center has become one. I think that was my last line. Ooh. That was in the summer. Well, probably September, October, uh, the Tennessean did an article on me that was inspired by a phone call from the Southern Poverty Law Center. And it called me an apologist for white supremacy because I had reviewed a film. The film was a conversation about race that had been put together by um, a white filmmaker who they said was a, a racist. And they, part of why they said it was a racist that he had gotten into an online fight with someone about Obama. And maybe he called Obama a monkey or something like, somewhere a monkey or something like that got said. But I kind of liked the film because I had gotten tired of just showing the eyes on the prize when I did yeah. civil rights uh, mm -hmm. courses. So they would have all these films about race, but they would always be the same film, yeah. mm -hmm. pretty much. So I wanted to show a film that told it from the perspective of white people. And this guy was very clever. He just stuck a microphone in front of people's faces and, and I can sympathize with the people and he asked them uh, to define racism. And most people on the spot, they can't define something in a very clear way. And, but they said it was everywhere and all the time. And white people, he, he interviewed whites, you know, blacks, Asians, all kinds of people, well-educated people. And they all said racism was everywhere. Uh, and then he said, well, can you give me some examples? Well, then they were really stumped. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then uh, with some of the blacks, uh, there was a person that said, well, I went to a department store and the clerk said, may I help you? And like, maybe there was something about the way that the clerk said that she thought it was racist, but when you actually say that on camera, <laughs> it doesn't play very well. <laughs> uh, and then um, there was a black man said that he dated white women and that everywhere he went, that he knew that people were looking at him out of the corner of his eyes. And so all the examples that they used were examples of, and it was, it was everyone, whites and blacks speaking, yeah. that they kind of fell flat. Yeah. And then this man uh, uh, kind of ends with uh, a um, animated part of it where he's a child in the classroom and there's an Asian teacher and a white teacher and they put two words, black and white on the board. 
they ask the kids what comes to mind. And so the kids, you know, are trying mm -hmm. to cooperate and say what comes to mind. And then the, one of the teachers turns and say, you're a racist, you know, you're all this. And so supposedly he was so traumatized because of it. And he said that uh, racism was something that minorities used pretty much, that it didn't uh, exist and was used to beat up white people. Well, I thought it'd be great for classroom use. So I gave it an overly enthusiastic endorsement. <laughs> and that's why the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, labeled me as an apologist for white supremacy. <laughs> and I was attacked. Uh, all the big uh, radio shows uh, were talking about me, yeah. but no one, I'm talking the ones with the black hosts, they would not have me on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah. I was just being, it was just, I did not have the platform. This is 2009, did not have the platform mm -hmm. that I have today. Mm -hmm. right. And James Taranto with the Wall Street Journal, he was the editor of the Wall Street Journal online. Mm -hmm. He did a 2,000 word article in defense of Carol Swain and it kind of backfired against the Southern Poverty Law Center because after all, I was the author of the new white nationalism in America, it's challenged integration. And just with my record and who I am and stuff like that, it helped mm. show that the Southern Poverty Law Center had no credibility. Mm. Wow. Do you think that's what's gonna happen with Larry Elder and, and the LA Times opinion piece on him? Are you? Oh, I mean, they call Candace Owens a white supremacist and they have redefined what it is to be a white supremacist. Yeah. When I was doing my research for the book that was published in 2002, a white supremacist was a white person who thought because of their race and ethnicity that they were superior to other groups, that the white race was supreme. Right. Uh, now, all white people are considered white supremacists. Right. And so blacks that, um, you know, that will speak out against discrimination against whites are considered a white supremacist and maybe even anyone that's not buying the leftist agenda, mm -hmm. the progressive that's agenda, right. Right. is labeled as a white supremacist. But I think that the average American knows that this is foolishness and this is nonsense and this is ridiculous. So I don't think it will affect Larry Elder. Yeah. And it's very dangerous to ask me a question because I answer it like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know. It means that I just go elaborate on it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I know long enough I forget the question. No, no, that's, that's good. That's good. With, with, El with Elder, what's what's interesting about this for me is that it seems like they have to find a way to expand. I read another article from CNN that the census, the American census, came out the last one that they took last year that the white population is, de is declining and now people of color becoming the new minority in But America. I mean, when I wrote The New White Nationalism in America, we already knew that. Right. We exactly. knew that, wasn't that any... was going to happen by 2047. Uh, yeah. And it may happen sooner because the uh, census asks, what race do you consider yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, yep. a lot of people consider themselves anything they want. Yep. And so the white category is overinflated. Right, right. <laughs> oh. But with that happening, the narrative of white supremacy now being, with white people being a minority, white supremacy will have to be a minority too. And so with that changing, they have to give white supremacy to a majority in order to keep those things intact, right? So now we have to have other people that are not white, white perpetuate yep. white That's supremacy right. as And identity. they consider Asians right. white. Right. And so, um, mm -hmm. and when they're talking about hate crimes against Asians, um, they're not saying who's committing those hate crimes. I got a I got a question. Can you sign my book? I'll be happy to sign <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, like, I enjoyed it, by the yeah. way. Well, good. Yeah. We enjoyed it.
American colleges have become more hostile to the faith of young Christians than the beaches of Normandy were to the Allies, literally. Undergraduate training wasn't always a death trap of unbelief. Once, colleges were boot camps for body, mind, and soul. Now, most college students spend their days in tax-funded adult daycares with all the intellectual rigor of lazy rivers, safe spaces, and complimentary condoms. And in our recent COVID faux-pocalypse, those daycares became prisons almost overnight. Cover your face, line up for your shot, stay in your room, but don't worry, the condoms were still complimentary. At New St. Andrews, you are not on vacation, you are not in daycare, and you won't be herded into a dorm. From week one, you will be treated like an adult. You are responsible for paying your own rent and developing your own grocery budget. Or going hungry. Get a shot. Or don't. Mask up. Or don't. Most of our students even work part-time jobs on top of the 40-hour class workload. It's part of the anti-fragile hustle and grind that distinguishes our graduates from the majority of their own generation and that employers and graduate schools love. Most college graduates in the U.S. are stuck paying off loans for years. New St. Andrews sets you up to graduate debt-free and dangerous, ready to pursue grad school, a family, or business opportunities in the real world without any reliance on pork subsidies from Mother America and with no weepy need for safe spaces. The real world isn't a cushy place. No one owes you success. You are entitled to exactly jack squat in this life. But rich or poor, unlike your face or your freedom, your job or your business, an education and the ability to think clearly can never be taken from you as long as you are still above ground. Not by petty tyrants or cowardly clergy, not by thoughtless mobs or lab coat megalomaniacs. At New St. Andrews College, you'll learn from teachers whose ideas equipped men and women to build Western civilization in the first place, and which will be used again to defend and rebuild what has been lost as the West has faltered into decay, losing her faith and her mind. Yes. Most of our best teachers are dead. But our classical Christian liberal arts education is how we've been graduating thoughtful, articulate outlaws and leaders with spines for the last quarter century. The intellectual and theological bedrock beneath the Judeo-Christian West is what you'll study, engage with, write about and own. It is what you will debate in class and present in public as you learn to live like forbidden fire, surrounded by the darkness of unbelief, manifesting God's truth, goodness and beauty to all who live around you. Training like this can't happen over Zoom. At New St. Andrews, we believe whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of real or virtual fools will suffer harm. Your peers shouldn't be your spiritual leaders. You should have a real flesh and blood in-person church for that. NSA is in the heart of downtown Moscow, Idaho, where you will witness men and women building Christendom on every corner. Where else are you going to be able to break bread in your professors' homes, debate great literature with them while their kids are playing, sing psalms while being arrested with them, catch turtles with them? No one comes to NSA to get lost in the crowd. You might be able to hide in a graduating class of thousands, but our classes are better measured in dozens. You will grow in this program or you will tap out. And when you finish, you'll be ready for life in whatever moments and scenes and struggles God may have prepared for you. We are training students who worship and march and study and fellowship and sing and write and start businesses and raise kids that no one can mask, cancel, or bury. We follow the King of Kings who knew the way through the mob and out of the grave. We fight to rebuild Christendom in the ruins, in our families, and in our businesses, in the cities where we live, in the countries where we go, in the congregations where we worship. Your mom may worry that Moscow, Idaho is many miles from home. 
she should worry more about how spiritually distant even a nearby godless campus is. After four years in a Christian community like ours, you will grow much closer to your family. Don't stay distant. Click the link today to schedule a visit to New St. Andrews College.